Only a couple of races ago, we were all saying Charles Leclerc had this championship, not sewn up, but had a lead that was going to be difficult to catch. Of course, Max Verstappen, two retirements in the first three races, not an easy start for him. But there is one stat you've got to keep at the back of your mind, that Max Verstappen has won every race he has participated in this season. And when one bad day happens to Leclerc, Verstappen pounces and takes advantage. He takes the lead of the championship, leaving Barcelona, going into Monaco. We're going to be talking about that here this week on the Armchair F1 podcast. Welcome back. As ever, you can follow the Armchair F1 podcast on social media at Armchair F1 pod. Drop us a like and follow across social media and, of course, listen to us across all major streaming platforms as well. I'm pleased to say that I have some freedom back. I'm totally done with my degree now. And so to quell the boredom that this free summer may be, there's going to be plenty of content coming out from the Armchair F1 podcast, hopefully not just in audio form as well. So stick around this summer as well. Plenty of plans coming forward as we move throughout 2022. In the meantime, what a Spanish Grand Prix that was, I have to say. A track that has never delivered very good racing in the last few years. It was great to see some fantastic racing in Barcelona, at least certainly a lot better racing than we've been used to in recent years. And many storylines to come from that race, of course, Verstappen taking the lead in the championship. Maybe maybe there's a feeling he's becoming unassailable. His form, I would say, certainly better than it was already than tw- already better in 2022 than it was in 2021. Mercedes as well, they're a big story from Barcelona. All of the talk coming into the race, a difficult first few races, but Mercedes and George Russell in particular seem to be getting on top of the car and plenty to discuss. Are they back? Are Mercedes back now in that title fight? I wouldn't say they're there yet, but they're a lot closer than they've been so far. And I think that is very encouraging indeed. And of course, it's the Monaco Grand Prix this weekend as well. So of course, we've got to talk not just about what to look forward to, but that age old question, should Monaco be on the calendar and I will stand that the Monaco Grand Prix stays on the F1 calendar till the dying days I wonder if my guests will think that later on the show let's bring them in Joe Spagnoli and Rory Norris good afternoon to the both of you hello 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 pleasure good afternoon it's good to be back it's great to have you on this week let's let's get straight into the Spanish Grand Prix and firstly before we talk about Verstappen before we talk about the Claire before we talk about anything else I want to go to the new rules because We've said so many times that these new rules, the fact that they've encouraged closer racing, they seem to be doing that in the first few races. But a lot of us were saying circuits like Catalonia, where we've had terrible races in the past, but overtaking has been a nightmare. That was going to be the ultimate test of whether these new rules work. And Rory, I have to say, they passed, I think, in Barcelona with flying colours. They absolutely did. Absolutely did. Before the pod actually started, I, uh, I reloaded the F1 race highlights on YouTube. And it really just stuck out to me as I was looking for, for a potential talking points, trying to do a bit of predicting, just how many different overtakes we saw compared to the usual, you know, turn one nonsense that we're used to over that long straight. The one that sticks out to me in particular was Max Verstappen's uh, towards the second half of the race, just on, on the outside, using all that grip, all his downforce, just real trust in these new cars, these new regulations is causing closer racing. And I don't think we can really sniff at that at all. Absolutely. Joe, I can remember, I think 2008, I can remember there were two overtakes that whole race in Barcelona. Of course, we've spent so many times moaning about that track, that really clunky chicane right in that final sector that seems to make no sense whatsoever and completely undermines all the driver's momentum. The fact that it's a really good testing circuit. It's a good opportunity to test different strengths in different areas of the car. But, you know, racing through a lot of long, medium speed corners isn't really the best thing for cars to follow the amount of dirty air produced. It seemed to be a lot different and there seemed to be some overtaking, not just on that main straight, but at different parts of the track as well. So generally, we'd say the rule, these new rules, these new regulations have been successful based upon what we saw in Barcelona. And I think there was a nice balance to it as well. I completely mm. agree. And it, it never felt purely artificial. It never felt like this track had been created for this generation of cars to generate an unne- like an unnecessary amount of overtaking. You still had to work for it. It's kind- It kind of became almost what Hungary has in the last few years, mm. except there was a little bit more action, a bit more side-to-side stuff. Cars were actually able to follow, which, as we all know, was the number one goal of these new regulations and was the number one sin of the Spanish Grand Prix in recent years. 
I'd completely forgot about 2008. Oh my God, that was such a bad race. And that was in <laughs> those, that was in cars that weren't built like tanks. So yet again, mm. I have to confess I've been wrong about these new cars. I was a skeptic. If we can get a good race around Barcelona, I'm really looking forward to the French Grand Prix. Maybe that track, just like Spain, will finally be freed of the unfair malignance that people f- feel towards it. Paul Ricard's a decent track, as mm. is this. It's just it needs good cars for good racing. Well, maybe Paul Ricard's in whichever of the 180 layouts that they choose to race on. Maybe maybe this is what will save its space on the calendar. All of the moaning, all of the issues we've had in the past few years. Maybe these new rules have been a, a blessing to many tracks like this who perhaps have been under pressure in the last few years. But speaking of pressure, Max Verstappen has certainly risen to the pressure in the last few races. Four wins from the four races, including the sprint in Imola, that he's finished. 110 points to Charles Leclerc's 104. In many ways, this was a race that had Charles Leclerc been a, not had the reliability issues, he would have won that race. I w- probably want to throw that caveat out there to start off with, but Verstappen took advantage, and once he was out in front, it's fair to say it didn't look like anyone was beating him. Cer- certainly once Red Bull intervened, and that we'll come on to in a bit, but Joe, start off with you this time. Verstappen again, seemingly very much in control at the moment. After what was possibly his weakest Grand Prix weekend of the season so far, the unforced error into turn four, and granted Mm. we saw quite a few people making mistakes at that exact corner, and the advent of wind as well, and to be fair to Max, he did a much better job of collecting it than Carlos Sainz did, but people can say a poor weekend from Max by his standards. Late stages of the race, he was still handily faster than Mm. Sergio Perez on pure pace. He also massively beat him in qualifying, and I've been saying so far this year, That's the attribute where Perez has improved the most this year. So for Max to have that advantage is pretty imperious. And, you know, you can say, granted, Leclerc was going to win that race. He was probably going to get fastest lap as well. Could have been a grand slam and he lost it. But now, in terms of the bad luck, it's completely fair. Totting up the maths on it, Max has lost two second place finishes. So that's 36 points. Well, Leclerc has lost now a win and a likely fastest lap and the eight points that he would have gained on Verstappen anyway. So 34 points. The luck is more or less balanced out Mm. already. We have a real fair championship fight on our hands and right now Verstappen looks to be ahead and we're going into a race this weekend that Leclerc's format is quite frankly terrible. And Verstappen's as well in the last few years has been blinding as well. So not, not the best omen for the Claire. And it's interesting, of course, because we mentioned Verstappen was having issues throughout the Spanish Grand Prix. Let's not kind of shy away from them. The reliability issues that he's suffering at the end of qualifying, the power issues there that stopped him going for that pole position. And many at Red Bull believe he would have got that pole position. But then, of course, you mentioned that uncharacteristic spin. I think the first unforced error I can think of from Verstappen in quite some time. I literally try to scale back. I can't think of an unforced error of that ill just off the top of my head, which probably explains how peerless he's been of late. Rory, this was, it was one of those weekends where you'd say Verstappen wasn't necessarily putting in the strongest of performances. There have been better weekends, but it was one of those weekends where if you're going to be world champion, you've got to take and maximise every opportunity. And he did that. Of course, I mean, it's it's a phrase that I go back to time and time again, the best ability is availability. And that's the thing that Verstappen, whenever he seems to need to make that that jump and and push that, that hard, it seems he's always in the right position to do so and he always makes it. As Joe said, going off turn four, you know, collected it very nicely, a lot better than Science did. Mm. Again, it, even with, uh, you know, obviously not sure how much, I'm not an F1 driver, don't know how much the wind actually does come into that. Of course, I'm guessing a driver of Max Verstappen's calibre wouldn't be put off by just a, a, a mere gust. But, um, you know, he's not Nico very, very Rosberg. Well. He's not Nico Rosberg. You're very right, right in that. Uh, but no, he's he's been absolutely imperious, I think. It, it's, it's genuinely one of the most impressive runs that, that I've seen that his just be, being available. And then whenever he's not available, the, the, the force of what he would have done if he was, I mean... It's going to be an interesting season. That's that, that. That's that's one thing for sure. I mean, obviously Leclerc. There's always that fact that he was putting up, I think, 14 seconds on on Perez. I think that was the lead whenever he had to retire. Mm. Obviously, we can we can shoulda woulda coulda as much as we want, but you know, that's, Max Verstappen was there. He was there to capitalize, and that's been his greatest strength ultimately. Yeah, and ultimately, that as we've said so many times, that's what defines a world champion. It's the again, it's those peerless stats that Verstappen last year, aside from one race, finished first and second in every race that he could have done. Now he's won every race that he's been finished this season. It's 
becoming difficult, I think, to kind of work out a time when Verstappen's not going to be on top at the moment. But I want to talk about Charles Leclerc as well, because this really was Charles Leclerc's weekend to lose. And in many ways, from practice into qualifying, into the race, before his reliability issues, Charles Leclerc was the fastest driver, I would say, without any doubt. Now, you mentioned, of course, Joe, you mentioned the sort of the fairness now in terms of the points that have been dropped. But certainly we mentioned Red Bull's powertrain issues and the reliability, which hasn't gone away. How much or how concerned do you think Ferrari fans should be based upon what we saw in Barcelona? Do you think this is just a one-time glitch? Or do you think perhaps there's a more wider reliability issue that perhaps offsets some of the advantage they may have in that area relative to Red Bull? So I read the technical delegates reports, which keep track of power unit changes between the cars in terms of components. And what I can tell you at this point of the season is that Red Bull, despite the hype about their poor reliability, have actually changed far fewer components than Ferrari have, especially with Max Verstappen's car. I think he's only changed an exhaust system overall, whereas Leclerc, borderline everything has changed at this time, at this point of the season, even before the Spanish Grand Prix. The truth is, is that no power unit is more reliable than the other. There's some minor pace differences. Really, the game is pretty equal in terms of durability. But for Ferrari, I said this on this podcast, I said this on others that I've done, this should have been a one-two. Ferrari are all about front-end grip. Barcelona, that's half the game. And the straight-line speed advantage of the Red Bull is negated to some extent. This should have been a Ferrari 1-2, and they completely threw it away. In in Carlos Sainz's case, through an unforced driver error, although a decent recovery, and for Charles Leclerc, just throwing away a Grand Slam with a reliability error. It's as much of a missed opportunity for Ferrari as what Red Bull had in Bahrain, maybe even worse. And seeing one new Joe retire with a customer unit, that's not going to make Ferrari feel any better going into the European portion of the season. No, absolutely. And of course, especially as the European season continues, these engines, of course, we don't know the power units. Certainly, there seems to be quite a strain on the parts. So again, this really does feel like a missed opportunity and one where there are many concerns for Ferrari. Um, Perhaps going back to you now, Rory, and of course, on the dynamic of the championship more widely, and particularly with Carlos Sainz, because obviously within the Ferrari Red Bull battles, obviously the second driver is going to play an important part in this as well. And I think something that would be really frustrating for many Ferrari fans watching that race, that obviously a Charles Leclerc obviously had his engine issue. Carlos Sainz should have been there to pick it up. Carlos Sainz should have been there to pick up the pieces. And certainly if he couldn't beat Verstappen or Perez, at least put up a challenge to them. But he was nowhere. He was back fighting Lewis Hamilton. He was just totally not in the scene. And there have been concerns about Carlos Sainz this season and whether he's been truly at his best form at the moment. But this certainly, if we're talking about missed opportunity for Ferrari, obviously there was the issues with Charles Leclerc. They, well, they could be helped on the reliability front, but in many ways they can't be. Carlos Sainz, it's unforced errors. They really should be helped. It is. And I do wonder if maybe in Ferrari management, there's some, you know, slight edges of doubt creeping in about Carl Sainz's recent performances because they've really not been up to scratch. I mean, if you compare, you know, Charles Leclerc's performance at the start of this race, obviously discounting Charles Leclerc is, you know, an incredible driver, Mm. probably uh, one of a, a generation of drivers that, you know, would be considered a golden generation, you know, really top of his class. But, you know, it, they're, they're an equal machinery. That's the thing. Getting up the Drivers' Championship uh, stangs right now, we've got Science on 65 points being outmatched by both Sergio Perez and even George Russell uh, in the Mercedes, which obviously has been much maligned this season compared to their previous uh, previous achievement. I mean, y- you've just got a question. And it, it, the thing is, it is, it's unforced, a lot of it. It's, it's a question of whether it's, I don't know if it's confidence. You know, he was in absolutely scintillating consistency last season. I remember bringing up and absolutely lauding him for his consistency last season. And again, the best ability is availability. He seemed to be always there to make that that pounce and, and get points where he could. But I don't know. It's it, it, It's been a bit spooky. See, we're not seeing the same Carlos Sainz that we're used to. And, you know, that Red Bull 1-2, it really should have been a Ferrari 1-2. But right now, I'm not sure if he has the capacity to do that. I'm really hoping that he does bring it back to his his old form. Because I, I really like him as a driver. And I think that Ferrari is really putting him in a place where he can be getting these podiums, these even wins. Uh, but, you know, it just really you know, is to be seen whether he can get out of this slump and, and start scoring again. Do you think perhaps, I don't know, Max, maybe a bit cynically, there's a bit of a issue in Maranello at the moment and this is a team that hasn't been challenging for a title in a few years this is a team that hasn't won a title 
in over a decade. I don't know. Do you think there's a, and maybe I'm being very cynical here, but do you think there's a, certainly with some, I'm not obviously saying the reliability issue is down to just a lack of sort of practice of being in this position recently, but do you think that maybe there are some of these issues creeping into Ferrari in a way that there wouldn't be at Red Bull? Well, I mean, you compare it to last season, you know, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz were basically performing equally for the whole of last season. This season, I think there's much more, and you know, they've not committed to this whole first driver, second driver kind mm. of thing, and clearly wouldn't be making as many ballsy moves as perhaps Red Bull would in this weekend. Obviously, more to come on that later, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, it, it is a question: Are they suffering from success? Is it this new, new, new golf their their car that can challenge for these these pole positions, these wins, second places, third places? You know, it, it, it all comes to be seen. Is it the, the the pressure? You know, last year many would be seeing Ferrari as perhaps even the underdog considering their performance in the couple of years beforehand. Maybe are they suffering from their own success, their own developments, now that everyone's in fact expecting them to be up there in a position that Carl Sainz has never been in before? You know, it, it's very interesting con- to consider that, you know, Red Bull have this a certain pedigree of, of winning, which Ferrari in the, in the last few years certainly haven't possessed as well. I mean, it's, it, it's all interesting psychology and something to definitely keep an eye on as we enter this uh, last three quarters of the season. No, definitely. I guess just to round off this section, Joe, in terms of that psychology, in terms of that sort of inter-team battle, at the moment we're leaving Spain we're going into Monaco we've obviously had perhaps the first visible cracks emerge in Ferrari and the reliability over the Spanish Grand Prix weekend we saw Red Bull very professionally and competently pick up the pieces there whose garage would you rather be in right now F1's a very what have you done for me lately sport so I think the answer (laughs) by default becomes Red Bull However, going into the Monaco weekend, I'd probably rather have the Ferrari for its front-end grip. Mm. Momentum's got to be with Red Bull, uh, not just in terms of the car on-form reliability, but also both drivers. Uh, Leclerc's recently had an unforced error at Imola and has lost a Grand Slam at Barcelona. Max Verstappen's in imperious form and Sergio Perez is looking like a top five driver in Formula One. So on balance, you'd say Red Bull, but if you're giving me a choice of the car for this weekend, Ferrari. Well, let's just hope that Charles Leclerc doesn't fall into his usual Monaco habits. And maybe then, being in the Ferrari garage, that's all that's needed that weekend. But certainly one driver who, again, not maybe always in the best of form at Monaco, but one driver who certainly caused quite a stir within the team at the Spanish Grand Prix, Sergio Perez, the number two at Red Bull. Is he happy with that, though? We'll be talking about that next. Now, Sergio Perez, of course, we've spoken a lot about how he has improved, not just really as a second driver this season, but indeed as a driver, his qualifying pace particularly really improving this season, his consistency in the races, which has always been excellent, something that's really been visible this year. But we saw perhaps the first signs of disquiet within the Red Bull camp this season, something that, of course, was a common feature in the Sebastian Vettel-Mark Webber era when, of course, Red Bull were last winning championships consistently. But we saw, of course, Sergio Perez, who sort of emerged as the lead Red Bull after Max Verstappen's spin early on in the race, and then, of course, him being stuck behind George Russell and Perez. We saw quite a feisty Perez throughout the race, being very clear that he believed that, A, he could be the lead Red Bull in that race, and B, he had the pace to consistently to be consistent and win that race. And there was particularly the moment after going into that final stint when Verstappen came out on seven laps, younger tyres than Perez, and was told to and Perez was told to let Verstappen through. And Perez very visibly indeed calling the decision unfair over the radio. And I mean there's been so many debates about this over the last week. I've seen so many people saying that Perez should have should have given up the position. That's what his role is in the team. He wouldn't be in the position if he didn't respect that. In fact, he shouldn't be questioning the decision at all. I've seen many people saying, and arguably, understandably, I would say, well, it's race six of the season. It's still far too early to be imposing direct number ones and number twos. But, of course, that's something that's worked for Red Bull and it's worked historically very well for so many teams as well. So I want your thoughts on this because... In many ways, I can see from both sides. I can obviously understand for Verstappen, he wants to be maximising every opportunity to score points, especially given how this season could be a very close fight with Leclerc. And I do think as well, he probably would have been able to overtake Perez on the track, I think just given the nature of his pace. But, you know, it's very early on in the season still. And it's not very, it's not totally out of the blue that Perez could go on and become 
the the faster drive. It's unlikely, but it's not out the realm, realms of possibility that Perez could become a much greater championship challenger. And then what do you do? Then how do you show preference? Joe, let's come to you first on this section. What's your thoughts on the whole Perez saga from the last week? I feel like it's been blown a bit out of proportion, as things usually do by Formula One Twitter and the related communities. If this had happened in the final 10 laps, it would have felt far more like Austria 2002, like Multi-21, stuff like that. As it was, this was during the mid-phase of the race where, let's be honest, the only reason why Verstappen had been unable to clear George Russell and had lost a lot of time as a result of that was because he was on a subprime strategy Mm. and his DRS had been faulty. Saying that, though, I feel like Red Bull could have handled things better because when Verstappen was stuck behind George Russell and Perez was closing in, they didn't invert the cars quickly enough. At that point, I feel like there's a pretty good case to say, look, Max, let Checo through now. He can clear Russell, which will make it easier for you to get through as well. We'll pay you back later. If that was the case, there wouldn't be this kind of controversy. Um, as for Perez's message, I think it makes total sense. People say silly things in the heat of the moment in Formula One. Kevin Magnussen did exactly the same thing on a lap one collision, which, let's be real, was a yeah. racing incident. But to imply that Lewis deliberately did it is absolutely stupid. So, yeah, I mean, Perez will be annoyed about it in the moment. In the long run, he really won't complain. He gets to drive what is probably the fastest car in Formula One. And if he if he becomes the fastest driver in Formula One, within time, Red Bull will start to accommodate that. But I think it's unlikely. Yeah, and I think there was always that sense with Perez that he was there to kind of support the upcoming youngster, Max Verstappen, who's going to go on and be what, the fastest driver perhaps of all time, as many people have said about him. But there's, I guess there's always that argument of should second drivers be allowed to win races? Should they be given that ability to do so perhaps when the wider championship fight is, it, is in contention? But certainly... I think Joe brought up that point there, Rory, that important point of, yeah, Perez was the faster driver. He was the one whose car wasn't as ailing as much throughout the race. And strategically, would it perhaps make more sense to let Perez go out in front? And sure, if the gap's sort of a larger sort of 10, 15 seconds, then maybe Verstappen just has to take humble pie. This was Perez's day. I guess a bigger question around this, and this is something I've seen quite a lot, is that Red Bull would simply not allow Perez to win a race. Fundamentally, whatever the gap, Perez is there for a reason to support Verstappen. I mean, do, do you see that in every scenario, in every circumstance, that's something that would be supported? Because I've seen that on so many people on Twitter, and I think it's utter lunacy. Yeah, I'd agree. I think you know this is a situation, again, I th- I'm completely agreeing with Joe and a lot of things he said in there's been blown right out of proportion, to be honest. Sh- show me the day when Sergio Perez, on the last lap, is 20 seconds in front of Max Verstappen. And they have him stop his car on the grid and let Verstappen pass to take first. And then I'll have a conversation with you about whether second drivers <laughs> are a bad thing. But in this case, again, as Joe said, even if it's, if it's lap 50 and, and this is happening, maybe there's a conversation saying, oh, let Perez defend his position, you know, see, see if he can earn his worth, you know, get the position that he's rightfully earned in that case. This was the mid, you know, the, 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 in the thirties of the race, you got Perez on older tires. Max Verstappen coming through is, is quicker, is going to get past. From Red Bull's perspective, even from, it's not even a first driver, second driver dynamic, in my opinion. It's just a dynamic of what makes sense for the team. Mm. Because, you know, Verstappen's going to get past at some point. Whether he gets past after five laps of battling, after which both their tyres are in worse positions than they might have been if he just lets them pass, you know, then you've got, you've got to look at, there's George Russell coming up, there's Carl Sainz behind them in the Ferrari rocket ship. Like, it just makes too much sense for, at that point, to just let, let him go through protect both your positions, bring home the one-two. Because God forbid they even come together, you know, clash, then they're both out of the race because you've let Sergio Perez defend his position. I think it makes too much sense to take the safe safe option, you know, let, to pay attention to what's happening with the tyres, what's happening in the race. As soon as Sergio Perez is forced to stop his car on the grid to let Max go through, I think there's a conversation to be had at the very least. But to be honest, I'm not concerned. I think it's F1 Twitter's problem. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not willing to have any further of conversation apart from that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the kind of situation where, you know, team orders is something, there used to be that time when I think Ferrari kind of ruined the idea of team orders, where team orders fundamentally serve a purpose to help a team achieve the best result for them in the race. And in Ferrari, I think with Austria 2002, ruined the concept of team orders when, you know, in so many scenarios like that, from a strategic point, it's better to have the cars doing what they're doing so you can guarantee the result. And I I do think, you know, fundamentally, uh, Perez is allowed 
to win races. There may come a time later in the season when the championship fight is very close that they may have to invert the drivers. But I don't think they'd invert the drivers. You know, if it was a case, it was only a case if it was a one-two. You know, if it was a case where it's Perez, Leclerc, Verstappen, then obviously they're going to keep Perez out front because then why give the victory to Leclerc? So, you know, from a purely strategic standpoint, you know, it makes total sense what Red Bull were doing. Perhaps a reaction from Perez, and this is the interesting thing. So he's kind of, they've said there were some difficult conversations behind the scenes with Red Bull, but they sort of patched over everything and it's all fine. But do you think perhaps the fact, Joe, that Perez has kind of been vocalising his positions in this way, that he's been saying, oh yeah, I've been having discussions with Christian Horner because I'm concerned. That to me in that context seems a little bit strange. And I don't know if that's kind of why people have, been emphasizing the issue more than it really is find me a driver who wouldn't say and try to do exactly the same thing though you could stick kevin magnuson in that second car mick schumacher anybody and they would be asking the same questions they'd be making the same kind of comments that sergio perez was during that race anyway we we can't Mm. read the terms of these contracts we can't see just how explicitly written down a first and second driver agreement is um, but I, but I suspect honestly that Perez is far from the invari- like, Perez is far from the variable here. It would be the case with more or less anyone. And as Rory says, at least in for the time being, I can't see Red Bull utterly kiboshing a Perez race just to ensure Verstappen wins. At least not anytime soon. Yeah, and I think what if that was the situation? I think whatever the situation in the championship, I think there would be a lot of harsh words thrown Red Bull's way. I mean, there's a lot of questions, Rory. Of course, Perez sticking around for 2023 a lot of people saying that he's only really got one option on the grid because of the pressure young drivers coming up and the fact that there's really no other team for him to go to the Red Bull really is his only option and staying in that seat alongside Verstappen and I've again I've heard people saying in the last week that that Red Bull may be tempted to let go of Perez or Perez may want to move away which is a situation I see in neither really side's interest here Perez suits what Red Bull wants far better than any second driver they've had in recent years. And he's shown, you know, that competency consistently both last year and especially this year as well, where I would say, again, Perez has improved. So, again, this chat that's going on, it just seems to be some kind of waffle that probably the F1 Twitter are inventing just to give themselves something to talk about and try and be interesting. But I don't know. Do you think there's any kind of anything that kind of gives credence to these discussions that Perez may not be on the grid with Red Bull next year. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not a racing driver, but I've been team sport karting. If anyone was telling me <laughs> to give up my position in team sport karting over the radio for, you know, who's behind me, I'm sure I'd be annoyed as well. And I think that can translate a lot to what uh, Sergio Perez must have been feeling, you know, if, you know, if that, because I do get quite angry. Uh, but um, I think, you know, sh- again, as Joe says, show me a driver that wouldn't be annoyed at that kind of thing. And the heat at the moment, Again, people say all sorts of things. Kevin Magnussen, again, <laughs> was claiming that seven-time champion Lewis Hamilton was trying to, you know, just kamikaze the Haas out of the race, you know, for, for some kind of personal gain, which, you know, obviously doesn't hold any water at all. Uh, I mean, I, whether it's anything larger behind the scenes, I don't think so. Sergio Perez has been in the best position that he's been in in his whole career, bar towards maybe the end of the uh, the racing point era in terms of winning races, picking up consistent positions, consistent podiums, top fives, top tens. You know, I, I I don't think at this point there's any real question of him going somewhere else. I don't know if there's any real seat that would be open to him or anywhere that he would really want to go other, other than Red Bull, which do look like the best car on the grid at points this season. You know, I, I think it's going to be water on the bridge. I think it'll all be forgotten by next week. Yeah, let's, let's move on. Let F1 Twitter, you know, have the fights if they want, but we're going to move on, I think. Absolutely, we are going to move on and we're going to talk about Mercedes next because it's a very encouraging Spanish Grand Prix for Mercedes. A big question though, are they back? More next. So it was an encouraging weekend for Mercedes in Barcelona. Of course, they said they brought these upgrades particularly to sort out the porpoising issue which had been blighting them in the first few races that have been undermining their straight line speed that have been making the car very difficult to control for the drivers, the handling very difficult, and then just in general, not a great car to drive. Now, it's cl- it's important to say the car isn't perfect. The car's still got development to do, and even Lewis Hamilton is still saying there's still space to go. But an encouraging weekend for Mercedes, definitely. Um, 
Just going over the results, so obviously qualifying, Mercedes qualified George Russell in fourth, Lewis Hamilton in sixth in the race. Of course, George Russell at one point leading after Charles Leclerc's retirement. George Russell coming home to finish in third, continuing his consistent record of finishing in the top five of every race this season. Again, the only driver to do so. And then Lewis Hamilton, of course, coming home in fifth. Should really have been fourth had Mercedes not been having issues towards the end of the race. Um, Rory, starting off with you, I mean, Mercedes has a lot of decisions here and a lot of discussions about just really where they are. A lot of people saying that after Barcelona, they're comfortably now the third fastest car. Some people even saying they're back in the fight with Red Bull and Ferrari. I would say they're definitely the third fastest car. To say they're in the top two, they're getting there. They're not quite yet that quite there yet. The Mercedes engine still has some power deficits relative to the other with the other cars. And in general, the Mercedes is a car. There's still the issues with the handling. It's not the easiest car still to drive. I mean, what do you think on that regard? Yeah, I think I'd be in agreement with you. I think that, you know, solid third fastest. I think we've seen that from the qualif- uh, qualifying results. We've seen that from race performances. Again, you know, Lewis Hamilton really showing the, the, the leg power that, that car can have by making a sensational move up the grid throughout that race. Obviously, George Russell's consistency has been fantastic this season as well. And again, third time mentioning that this podcast, best ability is availability and their reliability is looking, you know, very squeaky clean right now. I think they're making gains where... Red Bull and Ferrari are maybe falling behind based on reliability. Again, they're there to pounce on those points wherever the positions present themselves to them. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it develops, you know, throughout the rest of this season. I've actually really been enjoying this sort of Mercedes as kind of, kind of an underdog figure based on their, their performance in those first, you know, two races. They're really not looking good at all bar you know got some points really luckily in the first race. But apart from that, not looking anything like the super team they've been over the past, you know, majority of the decade and I, I really love this driver pairing i really really am rooting for both of them i think it's incredible now that we've had a bit of a break from from mercedes dominance i'm really willing to buy into this and just see how how amazing they're doing again that that george russell defense i've played it over and over again my boy again <laughs> just a, a absolutely scintillating stuff on on the, the the racetrack it's just amazing i'm very excited to see what they're going to do i think third fast is definitely a good prediction who knows? Who knows? If Red Bull and Ferrari can't sort out their, their engines, their reliability, then we might see some other gains made. I don't think they'll be in the fight for the championship for sure, but could they sneak a run of the constructors based on both cars finishing high in the points consistently? Who knows? you got to say, it was an encouraging weekend. Seeing George, I think just seeing that overtake from George Russell, again, really showing, I guess, a maturity in his racing. Something, again, we've always kind of been waiting to see the true talent of George Russell come through. And I think this weekend was one that certainly gave those who'd always advocated hit for him, I think, a lot of plaudits indeed. Um, a very good weekend for George Russell. A good weekend as well for Lewis Hamilton. Sure, maybe not at the pace of George Russell, but certainly we saw in the race. Lewis Hamilton, again, in a car that for the last few years hasn't been designed well to go through traffic, making his way quite easy through traffic, taking advantage of the strategy and making it work as and when he needed to. Um, Joe, in terms of where Mercedes need to go next, obviously the porpoising has been not entirely fixed, but it's certainly been mitigated quite heavily. Where do you, else do you really see Mercedes needing to make changes? Because certainly the airflow of the car, just the general ability of the car to follow and general pace, that has got that's certainly been improved, but there are still improvements Mercedes can make. There are some general engine performance upgrades that I think I would recommend, not just for them, but also for their customer teams. However, they need to be pretty sharpish about those because the full engine freeze is coming yeah. in later this year and certain components are already restricted anyway. Um, so I would I'd focus on that, although it's worth pointing out in those technical delegates reports, I say Red Bull are very reliable. Mercedes have changed even fewer components than they have. I know that Hamilton had a couple of changes coming into this weekend. It was why his car was so goddamn good in the straights. But Mercedes, in terms of reliability, if there is a best power unit on the grid, it's there for it's theirs for that particular reason. In terms of the, your cornering, suspension, that kind of thing, I can't. I don't know the the details of this. I haven't analysed Mercedes in depth. Um, but what I think I noticed in Spain is that this is the first time this year where it's looked like Mercedes are comfortable enough of the fourth and fifth fastest cars that they wouldn't get stuck behind someone 
I don't think, suppose that crash with Magnussen hadn't happened and like at Jeddah, Hamilton had ended up stuck behind him, I don't think it would have dominated his race. Hamilton would have been able to get through on the pure merits of the car. And actually, we got a pretty good showcase of the upgrades Mercedes have made in terms of stability, in terms of being able to follow cars, which has been the death knell of Mercedes for the last few years. We got to see all of those improvements with a fantastic overtaking display from Lewis Hamilton and... On George Russell, just quickly, his best weekend of the year. You can't really ask for more than that. Out-qualifying Lewis Hamilton, who has won the last five Spanish Grand Prix before this one. It's pretty good Absolutely. Going. And I think the fact that George Russell, again, is taking advantage of every opportunity that comes his way. And that consistency, again, serves him really well going forward throughout the season. And it's interesting there, Jay, of course, you mentioned the cornering, the suspension, the fact that you really feel that Mercedes wouldn't get caught behind other cars because... Obviously, the two races so far this season, Lewis Hamilton's races, were dominated by getting stuck behind Kevin Magnussen and Jeddah and getting stuck behind Pierre Gasly in Imola. So, certainly some encouraging signs there for Mercedes. Just back to the drivers very quickly, because I know we've been talking the plaudits of both George Russell and Lewis Hamilton. And I guess we've kind of been, as a recurring theme, I think, emerging of who out of the two has been emerging better this season. Um Again, Lewis Hamilton's still saying he's having issues with the car, but certainly seems to be a lot happier with it. George Russell, it seems, certainly having no such issues, or certainly if he is, he's not being more public about it. Just very quickly from the both of you, um, because certainly Lewis Hamilton is under pressure, I think it's fair to say, this season. But certainly I think I would say the race for him was very encouraging in terms of his ability to use the pace of Mercedes to make his way back through the field and do one of those recovery drives that almost in a way makes it feel like if he is the driver in front, he is the one who can take advantage. Would you still say at this point out of two of them that maybe, sure, George Russell's had the pace, he's had the advantage over the first few races, but if you're going to back a driver over the season, you'd still back Lewis Hamilton? Yes. In short, that would be my answer. Over to Rory. I've, I've said it several times on the podcast I've said I will never, ever, ever again bet against Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> the, the, You're the not doing it. The temptation, the temptation is there because the, the 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 results are there, but you you just can't ignore. Especially now the machinery is getting better, you cannot ignore what Lewis Hamilton did last race. And obviously, a, a meteoric drives from both of them, but I, I think the magic's still there with Lewis. I think over a full season, I think that's who I'd back as well. I, I, I'm not getting caught out betting against Lewis Hamilton again because I, I I did at Brazil last year and I said I'd never do it again. Cool. I'm going to make it three from three then and back Lewis Hamilton. I think that consistency over the season and George is going to have some difficult weekends in the way that Lewis has had. But I think certainly once the car starts to develop as well, we've seen what Lewis Hamilton can done with machine can do with machinery that has been developed throughout the season and particularly towards the end of the season. There's always that kind of period where Lewis Hamilton goes on his most imperious form, and that is going to be exciting indeed. Besides. We've got the Canadian and the Hungarian Grand Prix coming up soon. So two Lewis Hamilton victories confirmed. I think we can say that confidently. Um, just finishing off the Spanish Grand Prix quickly, I want to start off with Aston Martin because they caused a lot of controversy going into the weekend. Some copycat parts, it seems, from the Rebel. I don't know what it is with that team and copying allegations. I, think, I mean, admittedly kind of openly copying the 2019 Mercedes in 2020. They seem to sort of openly copy the sidepod design of this year's Red Bull and bring it to Barcelona. Now, again, technical delegates of the FIA ruled that Aston Martin were fine with what they were doing. And to be honest, I don't know. I don't know if they did that after seeing the fact that both Aston Martins went out in Q1 and in general had a bit of a bad weekend, Lance Stroll especially. I mean, Rory, you look at what Aston Martin did. Of course, you've spoken a lot about Racing Point in the past. Was this, um, was this just a complete dud? From them, and almost I'd say a waste of their time putting their efforts into copying that Red Bull. I mean, I'm I, I'm no technical wizard at all, you know. Uh, but you know, l- looking at those pictures of side by side, you, you'd think the side pods were were very very similar, very very similar. But you know, I mean, at, at some point, when Aston Martin are looking as pitiful as they're looking, you just got to say, you know what? If you're going to try copy the cool kids and you're going to fail this much, just 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 let them let them get on with it. Just it's it, it's an absolute dud, you know. It, it really didn't. If, if that's what they were going for, which of course they'll deny that till the sun goes down, then they really did a poor job of it. I mean, it's it. I, I'm running out of, of of ways to be disappointed with this team. The, the formerly 
pink goddesses team my, <laughs> one of my favorite teams on the grid you know that missed the pink car you know those first few races with the alpine full pink livery bring them back please but it's you know it's, it's, it's incredibly disappointing they've just not looked anywhere near as good as who they were copying and there's, there's not really much more to say about it a complete dud if you're gonna cheat at least cheat well at least that's cheat what well. i always say if there was an aston martin one two i would have loved it i would have loved that so the, the, the <laughs> discourse the discourse on that would have been crazy but no it's another just regular aston martin weekend and yeah what more is there to say well let's stay pessimistic joe let's talk i want to talk about two drivers actually daniel ricardo and mick schumacher um Daniel Ricciardo, of course, under a lot of pressure at the moment. It seems a lot of discussions about his race seat next year. Of course, we've discussed in the past the fact that certainly there's no one from the US where a lot of the discussions being held that McLaren really want to bring on. So that conversation is in many ways somewhat of a non-starter. But Daniel Ricciardo is not receiving the public backing from McLaren that you'd expect someone with a comfortable seat next year to have. Similarly, Mick Schumacher not necessarily not having the backing, but again, Getting into Q3 for the first time this season, but then having a pretty dreadful race, falling back to 14th by the finish and not really delivering on the hype and promise that perhaps I was certainly giving him at the start of the season. Um, looking at both of those drivers, how concerned should they be based upon the performances we've seen, I guess, seen throughout the season, but especially in Barcelona? Daniel Ricciardo is just, it's getting depressing. Mm. At this point, yeah, we. I think in retrospect, a lot of us, and I, I put myself firmly in this camp, were far too kind to him last year, basically blaming the MCL 35M for being difficult to drive, forgetting that on its day, it could be the second fastest car on the grid. Just, we were far too nice to Daniel Ricciardo as a particularly optimistic community. And I think the re-evaluation of Daniel Ricciardo has already started, and we're beginning to realise that actually it makes little sense for us to have praised him this much because he's never really had a great teammate in Formula One. People made a lot of a, a big deal about when he beat Vettel in 2014, Vettel's worst season in Formula One by an absolute country mile. I mean, who's he had since? Danny Kvyat, Torpedo, no longer on the grid. Max Verstappen in his early years, when he was far from the driver that he is now. An expiring Nico Hülkenberg, a returning Esteban Ocon. This is the first time in his career where he's been really challenged by a teammate. And against someone who quite literally had tonsillitis, he was both out-qualified before Norris's lap got deleted and thoroughly out-raced. There wasn't damage on the McLaren. They just couldn't explain why he was so far off the pace. And I don't know if you guys have seen a video that the race put up yesterday. Daniel Ricciardo seriously tripping over his words in a mm. in an interview question. I think Scott Mitchell posed him about his contract situation and then very weakly trying to get out of it. I'd be very surprised if McLaren did not exercise any option they had come the end of the year to get rid of him and replace him with someone else. And I think his next destination will be Haas because Mick Schumacher is currently doing absolutely nothing to justify his place in that team. How is it that Kevin Magnussen can bin his race on lap one in a racing incident, go completely to the back of the field and then outperform you on a subprime strategy for the rest of the race after you get into Q3 in the Haas? I, I'm beginning to run out of excuses for Mick Schumacher. I said he was overrated when he won the F2 title in what was a very poor season. With the, even despite the prestige of his name and the money he brings in, I find it difficult to justify a guaranteed grid position come 2023, especially if someone like Ricardo is going to be on the Yeah, and I think someone else who certainly perhaps doesn't befit the the Ferrari Driver Academy prestige that you'd hope it would be producing. Let, let's be a bit more positive now. Valtteri Bottas, Joe, someone you have been, of course, very much talking up from the start of the season. Again, a very consistent weekend. I would say to a certain extent, Perhaps an even better weekend for Bottas, of course, qualifying in seventh, finishing the race in sixth, looking very much like he could perhaps if the situation had ended up that way, maybe even challenge for the podium as well, or certainly certainly fight with the Mercedes as that race was going on. Um, Bottas is looking ever more the impressive driver as the season goes on. And I have to say, I was mean to him at Mercedes. I do think maybe just being up against Lewis Hamilton in the form that he was, I don't. I think it was very. It became very easy to forget just how good a driver Valtteri Bottas was when he was at Williams and the consistent performances he was putting in there, and the fact that he is, I I would almost say annihilating um, Zhou Guanyu as well, which is not as much I say a slight on 
Joe Granu getting used to F1, of course, for the first time and still, again, putting in decent performances. But Bottas, I would say, without doubt, outdriving that car. And I think we have just witnessed Valtteri Bottas's, I'm going to say it, best F1 weekend for about three years. And I would say probably the best weekend any driver had on the grid in terms of the fewest mistakes made, consistency. It's far from surprising for Valtteri Bottas to put that car, which shouldn't really be in Q3, into Q3. But we were expecting a bad start. We expected the car to fade away. It just didn't happen. Sixth place in that Alfa Romeo on a track like that is pretty exceptional. Um, and and I, I guess people are being realistic about the hype for Joe Guan Yu. People aren't ragging on him for being so far behind Bottas. And I think rightfully so. But yeah, Bottas, every race weekend that goes by, this is looking like an even better and better signing. And he I called it, guys. I remember the preview. <laughs> I remember the preview before the season. Rory was saying it wasn't going to work out. You've been mean to him for ages, Cam. At Alfa Romeo, Valtteri Bottas is going to be what they wanted Kimi Raikkonen to be. I'm so glad it's working for him so far. And yeah, he was the driver of the weekend for me. Even better than even better than Charles Leclerc, who balls up one. Yeah, I would agree as well. Valtteri Bottas really impressed me so far this season. Um, another driver. We're going to finish. I guess we're going through a lot of the. A lot of the drives, but I want to finish with Alpine. I guess I want to talk about Fernando Alonso, of course. But okay, qualifying wasn't so great for him. But, of course, getting through, finishing ninth in the end. And in many ways, it's weird because Alonso has been saying off the grip, well, this he says is his best season in a long time, despite all of the bad luck and the mistakes that have befallen him throughout the season. But not just Alonso, but Ocon as well. Again, someone who's very underrated. It's fair. I think people keep forgetting that Esteban Ocon slots in sort of around the Lando Norris, Valtteri Bottas points range as well, consistently putting in these performances. I mean, again, Alpine going under the radar, being consistent, and in a track like Barcelona where it very much is showcases the characteristics of the car as much as anything else, really showing that there's a very cohesive package there. Yeah, I, th- I think it's good to see that they're, that they're getting back on good terms. I think I, w- I was definitely concerned for their reliability uh, at one point. Of obviously, Fernando Alonso taking a pit lane start at the start of this one, rectifying that incredibly, which obviously is Fernando Alonso with an unreliable car. Again, you know, it's it, it's it's an old joke. You know, we can make it time and time again, uh, but it, it seems like he's never going to be able to escape that. They, they do look very, very good on their days. They're definitely asserting themselves near the top, definitely in the sort of McLaren, Alfa Romeo, Alpine sort of fight for that upper midfield spot. Uh, certainly, despite the the fight for P4 and the constructors following uh, Red Bull, Ferrari, and Mercedes, I think it'll be interesting to see if they can carry it on. I'm I'm in the same camp as you, Cameron. That I'm a very big supporter of Esteban Ocon as well. I think he's very underrated. And whenever people on you know are, are talking about possible destinations for Oscar Piastri next year, I think writing off obviously you know Alonso says he's going to stay for a, a, another fair while. I think writing off Esteban Ocon as a replacement, the possible sort of someone to get put down in favor of. Piastri is, you know, a, a little bit too soon to be saying that right now based on his performances. You know, it, it's going to be an interesting, interesting to see how that pans out because they have looked, they've like they've had serious, serious pace. It's just whether they can keep their cars together, which is where where they, we're going to see, you know, who would separate the wheat from the chaff in that respect. Indeed, and of course that midfield battle as the development race continues as well. That's going to get more exciting. Indeed, well, certainly a lot to talk about from the Spanish Grand Prix, but let's move on now to the glitz, to the glamour. It's Monaco next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. All right, it's Monaco this weekend. And if you are, if you're someone who's new to F1 and you don't necessarily know sort of the ins and outs of the sport, I can imagine you've probably already heard about the Monaco Grand Prix. It is the jewel in the crown of Formula One racing around the Principality, the shortest street circuit, or indeed the shortest circuit in general on the calendar, the twists, the turns. It is a circuit where every mistake goes punished. It is a real test for the drivers. Maybe not a physical test, but certainly one of concentration and one where we've had some great moments in history. Um, I can remember 2008, Lewis Hamilton's first win in Monaco, a fantastic race, of course, the rain coming down that day as well and indeed all of the different strategies 2011 as well i think a really good race where strategy played a really big part and maybe ruined by that red flag that wasn't needed in the last few laps that let sebastian vettel change his tiles and go on to win that race in the end pretty convincingly um just before we start on monaco in general um joe first any moments from the monaco grand prix that have really stuck out to you in history 
Kimi Raikkonen retiring in 2006 and rather than going back to the pits, deciding just to go back to his yacht because that's how the Iceman lives. Uh, yes, so not actually a moment <laughs> from the race. Verstappen's crash in 2015 as well, mm. that was a very hefty one. And I, I, I'd say evidence of how just how erratic he was early in his career as well, because there are very few drivers, even in the era of Maldonado, that would have made that No, move. definitely. And also a reflection of just how far Formula 1 has come on in safety as well, the fact that he was able to walk away from such a violent crash. Um, Rory, any any other moments that stick out to you? I guess you got the trials and tribulations of Daniel Ricciardo, uh, having a win sort of cruelly taken from him and then redeeming himself. Uh, furthermore, last year, me sitting through possibly the most horrible, boring race experience of my entire life, uh, the only p- good part of which was then ruined by the F1 race uh, TV directors showing us Lance Stroll's poor attempt at a corner rather than uh, Pierre Gasly or Sebastian Vettel coming out of the pits. That was fantastic as well. Uh, you know, some fond memories, fond memories. Indeed. Monaco, of course, famously the only track that still uses its own TV direction that doesn't go from FOM and it uses Tele Monte Carlo. A little bit of me says they should change that. I don't know if I'm being cynical or anything, but I don't know. Or maybe, maybe Lawrence Stroll pays them for like specific amounts of airtime. And you can't do that with the FOM, but you can do it with TMC. And yeah, that's what we ended up with last year. The good thing is I wasn't watching that race last year. I think I was out revising. You were lucky. You were very, very very lucky. lucky Indeed. Revision is probably more exciting than last year's Monaco. Last year's race was dreadful. And so hopefully, even as these cars are very clunky, they're very wide, they're very heavy. Maybe there's a little bit of optimism about the Monaco Grand Prix. I'm not sure. And I think the problem is that as Formula One cars have got wider and they've got heavier and they've got more difficult to handle, races around Monaco have become a little bit more dull. They've become even more processional. Than normal it's a very narrow track to overtake on and in the best of times but the fact that these cars are much wider now that overtaking is so much more difficult that it is just a very difficult track for drivers to really race on and i guess this is this many some people might have cynically said oh well this is a track you never get much overtaking on but even with these changes i'm not sure the new regulations would have really made an effort which begs the question and it's an age-old question that's really intensified in the last couple of years is does Formula One need Monaco on the calendar? Now, I guess there's the historical argument in favour that it's a piece of heritage that, yeah, okay, it's racing is maybe not the best. And if Monaco was a new track applying to F1 now, it would not get on whatsoever. But in terms of the heritage of the Monaco Grand Prix, in terms of the history in terms as well of the fact, just I guess from the commercial value for that as well for FOM, you know, it's a really important race to have on the calendar. And it is one that's very different from every other race. It is a very different challenge. It is one that the drivers of course, say they enjoy as well. They enjoy that challenge. It's maybe not always the easiest one to watch as a fan, but it's a very different challenge that I guess completes the season in a way. But the racing hasn't been great over the last few years. And that has, of course, caused some concern. Rory, your thoughts. I, I'm very pro-Monaco. I've always been very pro-Monaco. I'm not saying it's perfect, but that it has a unique place on the calendar that you can't really drop it from. What's yeah, your view on that? I'll, I'll take a pro-Monaco stance on this as well, I think. I think if you're going to judge every circuit by purely how good a standard of racing is, then sure, it would lie towards the you know, you know the, the bottom part of, uh, of the circuit. But I mean, if we're thinking about memorable moments, the ones that we all brought up all within sort of the last 10, 10 20 years, you know, how many memorable moments have, have we had at Paul Ricard? You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a spectacle. That, that, that's the thing. And that's part of its value is it's just such a massive commercial success, you know, such, such a big, you know, j- just absolutely everyone coming together. You know, even non-F1 fans know about the Monaco Grand Prix. It, it, it's a rite of passage in, in the current calendar. I don't think that getting rid of it would be very good. I think I'd miss it. I, I think I'm willing to reserve judgment on these current regulations and how they're going to affect the standard of racing until after the race. I think if there was ever going to be a chance of seeing you know more kind of battles and more different kind of overtakes, I think it, it would probably be this year. But, uh, you know, we will have to see. I think it definitely deserves its place in the calendar and I'm willing to keep it there for the time being. No, absolutely. And of course, the great thing that Monaco has that Miami doesn't is that it has a harbour with water in it, which I think is just something we should really be celebrating. And I guess there's there's some people that say, well, if you like Monaco, 
then you, you know, and you're happy to have the processional racing there, then why do I moan about Miami? Why do I moan about those kind of street tracks? Well, you, you do have to, I do think you have to give in a little bit to the history of Monaco. And with, I think with Monaco, it's not like with a situation like Miami where it feels like you're just going to Miami for the sake of going to Miami. With Monaco, there's a much more of a heritage and a history that I think backs the race as well. That I think for the drivers as well, you know, yes, they don't always talk positively about the procession, but, you know, they like to speak about much more beyond that, which is so much more important in a way that Miami feels quite plastic. Monaco, so in a weird way, Monaco, this materialistically may be quite plastic, but the aura certainly isn't plastic. Joe, what's your thoughts, pro or anti-Monaco? You know I'm anti-Monaco. Very. You know I've I've been anti-Monaco for a very yeah for a very long time because of, I often have to drive around the bloody thing in simulators and it drives me absolutely mad being stuck behind far slower cars. But there are definitely positive arguments arguments to be made, and I think it's very important that you contextualise this alongside Miami a few weeks ago, which is similarly a pretty dire track when it comes to racing, although with far fewer mitigating circumstances in terms of where it's built. The thing is. You can make the argument about Miami, you know, none of the spectacle translated onto the screen. For me, the mm. same is true of Monaco. It may be a party, it may be rich and vibrant. I don't see any of it. I'm just there to watch the race. And if the race doesn't deliver, then I don't really care. However, at least with Monaco, because it's got such a historical tradition and such a passionate community, you know the race is going to be a financial success. It's very rare in motorsport that you get that guaranteed income. And this isn't horse racing, but the Triple Crown matters. Monaco, alongside the Indy 500, the Le Mans 24 Hours, it deserves preservation of some kind. I am not at all suggesting that the Monaco Grand Prix does not exist in some form. It is more important even than the Bathurst 1000, the Macau Grand Prix, the Isle of Man TT, anything like that. And I want to keep those going, despite the fact that all of them have very strong arguments against them. The issue I have is that the track is just so goddamn weird. And I appreciate that there is a unique element to Monaco, but it's impossible to argue that this isn't one of the weirdest tracks we have ever gone to in Formula One. And we have been to some bloody weird ones over the course of its 70-year history. You know, we have to have a different steering column. The wings are set up completely differently. And now that these cars are so big, you literally can't put two cars wide at certain points around this track. Forget about the concept of overtaking. There is a reason why most of the classic Monaco Grand Prix have barely any cars finishing or are in wet conditions. Incidentally, 80% chance of rain this weekend, Ooh. so we could get a good Monaco Grand Prix. I will. I Look, I'm anti-Monaco. People know that. I don't like the track. I don't think it delivers on a race day. However, we have to recognize the role of the cars in this. And despite me admitting that I was wrong about these new cars... If Formula One cars were considerably narrower, shorter, with less power and less aerodynamic grip, the Monaco Grand Prix would be vastly superior to what it is. And although I'm anti it, I cannot in good faith support taking Monaco off the calendar and putting Miami and Las Vegas on Yeah, it. I think that that's fundamentally what it goes down to. I think, the, as you mentioned there, the community in Monaco and the fact it's so tied up with prestige is so important as well. And yeah, if you're going to have a race that's on purely for prestige, at least have the backing to go with it. Monaco does have that. And it is, it is, it's a very different challenge. I get some people like it, some people don't. Obviously, in your case, Joe, you don't. But I think it is that thing that fundamentally, it almost has its kind of place etched in history. And I think that's something very important indeed. Um, Looking ahead to the weekend specifically, we'll make some predictions in a bit. But in terms of the character of the Monaco track, Joe, you were mentioning this. So obviously for the Monaco Grand Prix, Downforce is essential. Front and grip is essential. The steering columns, of course, as we were mentioning, are completely different this weekend as well. It's a completely different challenge. As someone who's done a lot of sim racing, someone who's done a lot of racing around Monaco, what would you say are the main challenges from what kind of you've experienced and the main things that kind of make Monaco completely different to every other track that's raced on? differential to something that are kind of difficult to explain almost by definition but often when you're setting up a dip for monaco whether it's in a simulator or in real life it's like you're setting up a wet setup honestly like you have it's just so much more open travel um and there's so much less focus on acceleration and straight line speed that the car's set up really unusually in terms of ride height and suspension stiffness as well there is nothing else on the calendar like it and we go to some very bumpy tracks over the course of the season 
Um, in terms of aerodynamics, it's actually a bit easy because you just set it to the maximum because there's no way you're going to be able to use the straight line speed. But the, the sort of balance between stability and turn-in is always at a premium as well. And that's something that teams are going to have to negotiate with these very heavy cars. Yeah, and indeed, that sort of these increasingly heavy cars is something that we've had a lot of dominate the conversation. But in Monaco in particular, you really do get the feeling that that's going to be an interesting thing. And of course, Rory, Joe mentioned um, stability there. Monaco is a very bumpy track. Let's not lie about it. It's very, very bumpy. It is a track that... Indeed, you see, I always remember that scene kind of going down the cars, going from Casino Square down to Mirabeau. And the fact is, it's almost like they do a big arch almost around the bump. Because and I, there's always that bit of me that's like, well, someone in Monaco just thought to not resurface that bit of road. But indeed, that all the bumps, the fact the turning circles as well in Monaco, again, getting that stability through the corners and the fact that the turning circles have to really come from so wide sometimes. You know, this is a challenge unlike any other and I guess really is there kind of anything else for really you want to add to that in terms of the turn and in terms of the stability just about this this is such a different challenge for the drivers all I'm going to say is if Mercedes can't sort their porpoising I'd hate to be George Russell's left coccyx this weekend oh that would yeah that would be painful and I think the bumps there I've always said about the porpoising issue but I think this is the race where it will get found out indeed. Well, let's come on to those predictions in a bit. We're going to be predicting this weekend's Monaco Grand Prix next. Okay, it's time now to return to our predictions for Monaco Grand Prix this weekend. And of course, we've been sort of following them so far. I say we obviously missed a couple of races, but I've I've so far scored it with Joe on two points me on half a point and Dylan on one and a half points. I think bearing in mind we missed one race, I think the predictions, I think that's reasonable. I might have to go and recount everything before the next race, but I think that's pretty much a reasonable place to sit. Um, Let's go on predictions amongst the three of us this weekend. Let's start off with pole position. And in many ways, the argument always goes if you qualify on pole in Monaco, you've basically won the race. So I'm not putting any pressure on your predictions here, but a brave man, I think, will predict a different winner to who gets pole position. Let's get going with pole position. I'm starting with Max Verstappen. And I know in some ways it's weird. This is a track we expect to suit Ferrari with the high front end grip and the focus on that. And the fact that Charles Leclerc has generally in qualifying, of course, he did a fantastic lap to get pole position here last year. I just think the form Verstappen is on at the moment and the fact that I think he is, the fact he is just so seemingly peerless at the moment. And I don't know maybe whether after the issues last weekend, there may be some more caution within Ferrari, particularly in sort of, obviously engine deployment's not a big part in Monaco, but certainly perhaps some of the maps that they could be using in Q3. I just think Verstappen is going to claim pole position. Roy, let's come to you next. Where are you on this? I'm in agreement with you here, Cam. I think it's going to be Max Verstappen's pole this year. I think he's going to carry on his form that he showed at Barcelona into Monaco. I think he'll pick that up quite easily on Saturday. Okay, so Joe, I feel you might be quite contrarian here. I am, yes. Um, I'm just going to go right into it. Carlos Sainz pole Why position. Why so? I think it, I, I don't want to say on form this year, but on form at this track, I do not have faith in Charles Leclerc <laughs> locking a lap together around here. I don't have faith in the Red Bull um, and its turn-in. If Charles Leclerc had not crashed out in Q3 last year, Carlos Sainz would have been on pole position. The lap he was on would have been good enough for pole position. He converts it this year. He returns to good form. Carlos signs pole. Okay, so a brave, brave prediction indeed. Let's stick with the race. Verstappen, for me, to convert his pole into victory. Charles Leclerc behind in second. I do think he's actually going to finish in Monaco. Surely, surely, fourth time lucky he's got to finish the Monaco Grand Prix. And given the speed of that car, I think he'll be going into second. Carlos Sainz, I think Ferrari are going to have the fastest car in general this weekend. I just think Verstappen's going to have an absolute blinder around Monaco, but I do think Carlos Sainz is going to hold out, get that podium in the Ferrari. But of course, I could be wrong and he bins it in the wall because let's face it, that's what Sainz would do this season. Joe, let's be contrarian. Let's come to you next. What's your predictions? Carlos Sainz to convert his pole position into his first ever Formula One win, which will be one of the longest ever waits for a first win in Formula One. But I really think he's going to get it this year. And if he's going to get it anywhere, it's going to be when Charles Leclerc is nowhere near him. And I think there will be cars between him and his teammate. Carlos signs to win from Max Verstappen in second 
and George Russell coming home on the podium. Why, why George Russell? Mr. Saturday, Lewis is not has not been great at Monaco in recent years. Last year, by far his worst Grand Prix of the season was Monaco all the way through the weekend. Yeah, I just I don't see any reason for Russell's form to stop. And again, I think Mercedes, with the improvements they've made on turn-in and stability, they could pay dividends around the principality. Okay, Rory, coming on to you next. Where are we going with your top three? So I'm being contrarian here. I've got a change between pole and winner. Because anything can happen. In the very world brave man. Very brave man. Absolutely, yeah. I've got, <laughs> I've got P1 Charles Leclerc. I'm going to say he's going to snap his curse in spectacular fashion. Obviously, you know, always one for the for the big result. I am big predictions, and you know, posterity will see that I'm right. From Max Verstappen and P2, I, don't, I think he might lose that starting position, but I think he'll won't lose any more than that. Uh, from Carlos Sainz in P3 again. As Joe said, he was in great form last year. Probably would have got pole uh, if it wasn't for Leclerc's red flag. Uh, I think he might... I mean, he's clearly got a chip in his shoulder now with everyone's talking down on him. I think he's going to want to improve and I think he's going to do that here with bringing home a P3. Okay. I think it's a very, a very interesting set of predictions there. I think all very much quite different. So I think it'll be interesting to see how these play out. One last prediction from the three of you. I'm going Lewis Hamilton out in Q2. I do think George Russell's going to have a good weekend. I mean, you mentioned Mercedes have made the improvements on turning. But I think, firstly, Hamilton's poor form in Monaco. Mercedes generally bad form in Monaco over the last few years. And I just think the fact that he will probably get stuck behind some cars. And yes, Mercedes have made the improvements, but I don't really back him that much. I think Lewis Hamilton is going to go out in Q2 in Monaco. Rory, your other prediction, shall we say? So we, we've berated him this whole podcast. But I think this week is the week for Mick Schumacher to pick up his first points in F1. Yeah, good luck. Good luck, mate. That's all <laughs> I will say. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Well, come on, Joe. So, something maybe a bit more realistic with your, your prediction. Guan Yu Zhou to finish in the points in, Al- in the Alfa Romeo and Mick Schumacher to crash out in an unforced error. Ooh, okay. I I can see that. Def- Are we saying both both happenings? Not either or both. Yeah, I mean, you need to you need to challenge yourself. I, Come on, I think to be I, fair, I can see those. both of them happening. I think Guan Yu Zhou. I mean, the Alfa Romeo has been a decent car, and I think certainly around Monaco, maybe where strength and speed is not an important thing. I think this is the track. Maybe he could have a good weekend. Mick Schumacher. Let's face it, he's been the wall, been the car in the wall a lot in the last couple of seasons. So not a bad prediction, indeed. Well, I'm excited to see how these goes. Of course, we'll be scoring the predictions in next week's show. In the meantime, though, thanks to Joe, thanks to Rory for coming on this week, and thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to be back next week where we'll be looking over the season so far as we head to North America. What can we expect going forward? As ever, like and follow the Armchair F1 podcast. Stick around at Armchair F1 pod and, of course, across all major streaming platforms as well. As we said, we'll be back next week. Much more to look forward to. But as ever, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.